you're listening to the CC Solicitors Podcast with Colleen Cleary, Claire Dawson and Regan O'Driscoll. Welcome to CC Solicitors Podcast. CC Solicitors is a specialist employment and partnership law firm. And I'm here today with my fellow partners, Claire Dawson and Regan O'Driscoll. And CC Solicitors is part of Inningard Executives. And Inningard Executives is an international forum of employment lawyers that specialise in advising senior executives. And just on that point, what we're going to discuss today is the specific challenges faced during COVID-19 for senior executives. And Claire, just starting with you, what are the issues you are seeing that senior executives are facing as a result of the pandemic? Well, I think it's really interesting, Colleen. I think the first thing to say is that senior executives and professionals are certainly not immune to the difficulties that are facing, I think, all employees because of the pandemic. They're they're under a lot of pressure to continue to deliver in challenging times. They're managing staff remotely, maybe for the first time. They're dealing with people issues, investigations, grievances, and that kind of thing remotely. They've got reduced support, so you don't have the office facilities that you're used to. Uh, You don't necessarily have the same admin support. And then they're going to have their own concerns about their own personal situation, whether it's concerns about the health of family members, childcare, having to deal with a number of people in the family working from home and homeschooling, that kind of thing. So uh, it's it's pretty challenging for senior execs. Yeah, I mean, I agree, Claire. It's pretty much of a perfect storm, like a, a huge amount of pressure. But at the same time, um, from a, a, a professional and corporate perspective, the, the pressure is still on them to generate the revenue. And I think what we've seen, because we act for a lot of senior executives and professionals and professional services firm, is that employers are pretty fast to um, implement a pay cut. And what advice would you give senior executives or professionals and professional services firms who are faced with being asked to take a pay cut pretty much in the first couple of months of the pandemic? Well, I think the first thing to say, and it's an important point, it's a simple point, but an important one, is that an employer cannot change a key fundamental term of your contract, such as pay, without your agreement. A contract is an agreement between two parties and the employer needs your agreement to change something like pay. Now, that amendment might need to be in writing, but that could include you agreeing by email. In some cases, just giving verbal agreement might be effective. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't agree to a pay cut because there might be good reasons to do so. But once you do, then it's a permanent change to your contract unless you've specified otherwise. And so it makes sense to ask some questions, I think, before you go ahead and agree. And there might be some questions that you can ask your employer without falling out with them, which would be simple things like, what's the basis for the decision to make pay cuts? Is it that revenue has fallen or is forecast to fall? What are the projections for the part of the business you're working in? It might be that some parts of the business have got very quiet, but if you're working full steam ahead, why should you have to take a pay cut? Is that fair? And is is the company using pay cuts to avoid making redundancies? Are people at the same level as you being asked to take the same kind of a pay cut? And also, are the very senior leadership of the company or the equity partners in a firm also taking some of the pain? So those, I think, are some of the questions that you might ask. Yes, I mean, I think they're quite significant questions because if you agree to pay cut, often it's permanent, especially in these kind of, as as we've all kind of mentioned, challenging times. So it would be good, I think, to take advice before you do agree to any such sort of fundamental change to terms and conditions of employment. And Regan, I suppose, sorry, Claire, go on. Yeah, I think think that's right. And I think there are the scope to negotiate 
with your employer, even if you think it's the right thing to do to, to agree to take some of the pain and take a pay cut. I think it's important to go back and potentially say the reduction should only be temporary for a fixed period of time. After that, you'll revert to your full salary. The employer can review it again. You might also say, look, I'll keep I want to keep my base salary, but I'll do a four day week. So um, for a prorated salary. And of course, that could be beneficial if you are struggling with competing demands of, of children at home, etc. It might be time to take some unpaid leave or parental leave if that suits you. Um, you may be able to negotiate with your employer around the percentage cut. If they're looking to make a 20% pay cut, would they agree to a 10% pay cut? And I think there are other things you can do by way of saying, well, if if actually we meet um, if the projections for re- reduced revenue don't materialize, will you make us whole in terms of going back to the original salary and paying arrears? Or you might be able to negotiate uh, something like a year-end bonus or some equity in exchange for, for agreeing to the pay cut. So it's just to think about ways to protect yourself as much as possible if you do agree. Yeah, I mean, some good tips there. And like we said, it's certainly worthwhile taking advice um, and having to think a little bit more deeply before kind of agreeing um, and committing um, to a, a, a significant change to terms and conditions. Because as we said, it could be pretty much permanent. So taking advice early at the beginning is, would be key. And Regan, I think we've discussed this before, but you know, what if women end up being the persons that take the pay cuts or unpaid leave, often in, in the context of any kind of family responsibilities that they may have? I mean, in our experience, from what we've seen, that tends to be the case. And, and what are the kind of pitfalls and things that you might need to be wary of in, in agreeing to do that? Yeah, like you said, we, we do see this, that it tends to be women who do take the hit on these responsibilities. And in fact, there have been studies already in terms of who's getting hit by that uh, within the context of COVID-19. And and the statistics are, are consistent in that it's mostly women. Different studies are showing 70% or 80% or 90%. So it's likely to be on the basis of what we've seen previously and what's happening right now, that women will take the hit in terms of uh, the effect on their careers, taking pay cuts or unpaid leave in order to cope with uh, childcare or their other domestic obligations and responsibilities. And that's going to have an impact on things like pension entitlements um, or other benefits and uh, other entitlements that they might have. There could be a significant impact and also in terms of their career progression. And something that maybe women should be very conscious of or senior female executives should be very conscious of here is that they might make themselves more vulnerable to uh, redundancy selection if they take leave uh, in this context. I mean, we've, as you said, we've discussed it before and I, I, I don't want to repeat myself in any significant, significant way um, because we've discussed it in a previous podcast. But um, where you're absent from the workplace, uh, it can make you more vulnerable to selection for things you might not like because there, there's a sort of what we might call a spreadsheet prejudice where you're obviously not going to be as profitable as somebody who's been in the business. And also you're just not going to be as visible and as, I suppose, emotionally or, or whatever, valuable to the employer because you're just not around. And what we've seen regrettably is that women are already on the back foot even before this happening because there is this persistent, and I really don't know why, but persistent idea of, of you know, man as the breadwinner, you know, husband as the breadwinner who's providing for a family, even though that's becoming decreasingly the case. And it's often women who are actually the higher earners. So you have to bear all of that in mind in terms of the potential impacts of any decision to take a pay cut or to take uh, hour cuts or 
um, you know, in terms of taking, a say, a day off per week or two days off per week, or even of taking parental leave for a certain period of time so that you're entirely absent. Um, and then conversely, I suppose, it's something for employers to be aware of that. Um, know why you're making the decisions you're making. Be conscious of the consequences of those decisions and what, you know, where are the prejudices that you don't even, you're not even aware of when making those decisions. So when employees are, I suppose, yeah, when a woman is making a decision to to go down a particular route, just be aware there could be long-term consequences. Yeah, and they better be forearmed and forewarned a, a, a number, rather than sort of initiating claims at a later date for potential unfair dismissal or gender dis- or discrimination on the grounds of gender and family status. Just be aware of, of, of those decisions that you're taking. And, and maybe you need to take some actions to make sure that that's addressed and that your employer is aware that you may be you know, on a reduced working day or, or, or time, but you're still fully functioning and, and your contribution needs to be valued too. And that needs to be recognised by your employer. Yeah, and it doesn't even, I mean, I don't think uh, employees even need to be particularly, uh, you know, aggressive about it or anything. Just be, I suppose, make sure you flag the right things and you you communicate in the right way. Uh, take advice if you're not sure exactly how to say what you want to say to lay markers down so that you're protecting yourself for the future. Yeah, I think that's good advice, Regan, definitely. So, Claire, just going back to you, we were talking there about pay cuts. I mean, how might things play out if, say, an individual C executive didn't agree to a pay cut? Well, I think, look, you have to think very carefully about the relative strength of your negotiating position before you decide to dig in and say you're not going to agree something with your employer. You know, how important are you to the employer? How strong a revenue generator are you? Do you have a strong negotiating position? And what are you going to do if ultimately the employer decides that if you don't take the pay cut, they're going to go down the route of terminating your employment Uh, What options do you have? At the moment, we're in a difficult market and people may not feel they have that many options. The odd person might be in a situation where it suits them to move on. So it depends. But your employer might decide to leave things. Again, if you've got a strong enough negotiating position, they might not push the issue of the pay cut. But I think a lot of companies are going to say this is a decision that's applying across the board and they're going to move ahead. If you refuse to agree You may just want to note it that you haven't agreed to the cut, even though it's been imposed upon you, so that at least further down the line, you've preserved a claim under the Payment of Wages Act or a breach of contract claim if you want to pursue that in due course. And if you do end up being made redundant, let's say three months down the line, that's a claim you might want to add to any other claim you have. But I think, of course, ultimately what could happen is that your employer does then decide to make a number of redundancies. And if you're expensive, you might well be in uh, the firing line. Yes, I think that's potentially true. I mean, we're in somewhat of a holding pattern at the moment with the pandemic and employment situation. A number of decisions are being kind of stalled. From our perspective, we also act for advise companies and employers And we're seeing some behind the scenes decisions that may take place probably in the coming months. And employers are going to make decisions around redundancies. And senior executives, in our experience, can be in the firing line a little bit because they're often in standalone senior positions. And there is some sort of flexibility to target people at that level to remove a senior executive and subsume the role or the responsibility of that senior executive from a kind of legal perspective that's something that can happen quite easily. So, you know, uh, senior executives do need to be aware of that. And, you know, if Matt is on, on foot or this is being planned, you tend to get the sense of that in an organisation and senior executives 
will have a full understanding of the business and will probably see it coming perhaps than other kind of more junior employees. So, Claire, what do you think if that is on, on the cards or often the senior executives get in the sense that is, this is coming? What recommendations or steps do you think a senior executive should take? Well, I think it's just very important to know what your entitlements are. And as an employee, you have two key sets of entitlements. You have your contractual entitlements and your statutory ones. So just looking at the contractual entitlements, again, what does your contract of employment or your service agreement say? What notice are you entitled to on a termination? A lot of senior people might be on between three and six months notice. Sometimes it might be longer. So what does your contract say about that? Does your employer have the right to put you on garden leave for that period. Often an employer will pay you in lieu of notice, but it's a common misconception that an employee has the right to be paid in lieu when they're made redundant. Although that's common practice, an employer could actually ask you to work out your notice. I think the other thing to look at is, are there any other outstanding contractual entitlements that you have on termination? So if you are on some kind of a commission plan, What's the position on that? Are you entitled to payment of all the commission that's been earned uh, once the revenue has been received up to the termination date? Or do you have entitlements beyond that? In terms of bonuses, a lot of the time, a bonus scheme will say that you're not entitled to it if you're not in employment on the date of payment. But a lot of employers will have uh, separate arrangements when someone's made redundant that perhaps the general practice is that you get a prorated bonus up to the date of termination for that year. So that's definitely something to look out for. If you're on a long-term incentive plan, you have share options, then you really need to look at the plan rules and what they say about a redundancy situation, but you will often get more favourable treatment. You're a good lever, so you'd be entitled to favourable terms on things like vesting. Similarly, if you have equity, if you have shares, you need to look at what the shareholders agreement and other documentation says. But again, you would generally be considered a good lever and have more favourable treatment if you've been made redundant. It's very unusual to have any contractual entitlement to severance pay or contractual redundancy pay over and above your statutory redundancy entitlement in the private sector. But there are some companies that do have this. So again, look at the policies, look at the handbook. There may be a formula that your company is known to use when people are made redundant, whether it's four or five or six weeks pay per year of service. Um, Although that kind of redundancy pay is getting Uh, less generous as the years go on. But you you may be aware of that um, as a common practice, but it it may not actually be contractual. Yeah, so I think the key really is, is to dig out that contract of employment probably from the bottom of your drawer. You know, take some time out for looking at your own situation. You know, senior executives are famous for, you know, sorting everybody else's problems, but not looking at their own position. So yes, do that. Check your contract of employment, collate that information, just so, as, as Claire says, you can establish what your contractual position is, because it's not going to be in one place. It could be an old contract, it could be an updated letter, there could be different policies on the internet that you need to source. That really just do a bit of a job on yourself, something that you would do for your own employer or for your own clients. Yeah, apply that same rigorous attention to yourself just to see, I think, what your entitlements are pending a, a kind of a significant or, or situation that could arise in relation to your employment. And Regan, you know, as we mentioned there, that there is going to be, unfortunately, a number of redundancies. And Claire talked about the contractual rights. What about the statutory rights that individuals um, have in relation to any decision that's taken about their long term employment? There, there are various statutory rights in terms of, I suppose, the main thing is they come into play as regards your ability to challenge your termination. And for whatever reason, in this case, it's going to be by reason of redundancy. 
And the, the main statutory rights are, they, co- they come under the Unfair Dismissals Act and the Informed Equality Act, and then there are various sort of penalisation, whistleblowing matters to attend to. Um, but the first question you'd ask, uh, or, you'd, or when, you, when you go to see a solicitor in that kind of circumstance, is uh, they, what they might ask is, why has the role been selected for redundancy? Why is it you? Um, have you been pooled with people? I mean, are you in a standalone role or are you one of many people in the same type of role? Um, if you haven't been pooled, then why not? If you have been pooled, what are the selection criteria that have been used? Are they valid? Is there something strange about the way they've been weighted? Um, are they discriminatory in and of themselves? Were there any suitable alternatives to the redundancy that could have been available to the company in terms of if it's on cost reasons or, or you know, revenue reasons, or whatever? Is there something else they could have done to save your job, which is what you know an employer is really obliged to do to try and save their employees' jobs in those circumstances if they can. So those are the main questions you'd ask. And you look at the overall picture as well. Sometimes when people come to us, there is a background to it where there were previous issues to do with performance that now it looks as though the employer is sort of opportunistically using the situation to create a redundancy where really there's none. And if something arises in the, in the course of those questions, if a few things ping, as the way I'd put it, then there may be claims. So the Unfair Dismissals Acts will say, you know, if, if there is no validity to your redundancy, then you can say it's unfair and sue for that if you've got 12 month service. Now, there are exceptions to the 12 month service, but the general position is you need to have that. And then the Employment Equality Acts say that uh, if there's some discriminatory basis for your dismissal, then you can sue again. Uh, under that, you do not need 12 month service for that. So there are nine grounds of discrimination. If it's because of your gender, your family status, as we've already discussed, you'll have a claim there. Obviously, there are other, there are other grounds to do with age and, and disability and membership of the traveller community and, and, you know, and so on. But also potentially it could be that you are being penalised or there's some sort of retaliatory issue here where you, you were a whistleblower. Uh, you raised health and safety concerns or some other concern. You know, the, with the classic case where somebody got an, uh, an injunction preventing their employment being terminated, where they, they said their employer was doing something funny to do with tax. You know, they weren't remitting taxes correctly. And then suddenly they become redundant and they managed to get an injunction for that because it turned out they, you know, it's according to the circuit court, they were whistleblowers. There are other things where, you know, you could be, it could be that you complained about being discriminated against and now you're being victimized for doing that, or it's penalization pursuant to the Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act. So we have to look at the overall picture to see, are there any claims there? Nobody actually wants to go down that road, I suppose, for the avoidance of all doubt. And when somebody comes to us, it's not that we look necessarily to hair off to court or to the the Workplace Relations Commission with them, but it can often be useful leverage in terms of getting a a more favourable termination package. And sometimes you do, unfortunately, have to issue proceedings. It's just the reality of it, as painful as that is for the individual. And then in terms of, I suppose, the basic statutory right is nothing to do with a claim at all. Generally speaking, it's just your statutory right to a uh, redundancy, a tax-free redundancy payment, which is limited to two weeks per year of service capped at €600 per week and then plus a bonus week. So if you've got long service, that can be, um, you know, a good thing to get. If you don't have very much service, it tends to be a very small amount, but it is tax-free. I suppose that's the good news to the extent that there is any good news uh, in, in those circumstances. Yeah, thanks, Regan. And I think the bottom line really is, is that the pandemic and there is going to be financial fallout and there is going to be justification for terminations and redundancies. But the point really is you've got to always remember it's the role, not the person that is redundant. And you've got to really consider you know, is this a genuine objective business decision that's being made about you to terminate you? Or is there another agenda or some other reason afoot 
that you need to consider that. And that's like what you've reflected on, whether there's other angles to it. It may be that there isn't, but it's a, it's a bit trite to say, but every case is, is on its own facts. And you've just got to consider your own position to see if there is anything there that would suggest that there were other reasons other than an objective business reason as to why you're being terminated, or if there was other kind of reasons as to why you were particularly or specifically targeted. It's all things to consider. Yeah, the, the, and also the, uh, and something I suppose I didn't mention, the um, the process that's followed. If you're, you know, you're a senior executive and you're walked out the door, you're told, you know, on a Tuesday, you're, you're sitting at your desk, whether it be in the office or at home, and you get a call or you're called into a meeting and told, all right, you're redundant, see you later. That, that's an unfair process. So that that's also something to look at in terms of um, an unfair dismissal claim. Because an employer is obliged to actually follow a fair procedure in effecting the termination and consult with you. Yeah, I think we've probably seen there's also some risks around injunctions as well, where employees have um, senior executives are accused of misconduct. And in those circumstances, it was a prospect or possibility for an employee to injunct an employer from terminating their employment in breach of their constitutional right to a fair hearing. Certainly, we do see during these kind of stress periods that those sorts of uh, injunctions do increase, don't you think, Regan? I do. Yeah, I mean, there's a difficulty, I suppose, around redundancy. Um, there was a recent enough case where somebody tried to injunct in the context of redundancy and, and didn't manage to do it. But it's not impossible. And where there, as you would say, there are underlying say, performance issues or, and the employer is clearly trying to circumvent that and uh, not following a, a performance management procedure or disciplinary procedure um, or whatever procedure they have in place, and they're just trying to railroad the person out through redundancy, then I, I could see a path to the courts. I mean, that's less a statutory claim, as you know, than an equitable remedy that you'd be seeking. But it's certainly something to look at. Uh, again, you know, it's not something you rush off to do irresponsibly, but it's a remedy that's there. And sometimes employees regrettably need to resort to it. Yeah, I mean, the courts are reluctant to, to jump into redundancy situations. But again, as we said, are there nuances to your particular case? Is there a whistleblowing angle? Is there a gender discrimination angle? It really is sitting down with you know with specialists like ourselves to have that conversation to establish what the situation is, just to uh, ascertain if there are other angles that you know or other kind of stones that need to be turned over in relation to your own personal position that we could potentially explore. So it's fairly complex. So Regan, is there anything else that executives need to be aware of? I mean, we've talked. Claire talked about as well about the personal stress that people are under, uh, not just in the workplace but also externally. But in terms of that, that stress that people are experiencing in the workplace, do you have any thoughts in relation to that? Yeah, I mean, the fact is, is that most senior executives, I think you'd agree in our experience, are, they're already under a lot of strain. Um, they tend to work long hours, uh, tend to have a, a lot of responsibility. So this additional strain of, I suppose, for some people, you know, trying to manage their family matters as well at home, while not allow their productivity to decrease, as additional strain, also just working from home, it's sort of you never leave your office then. And, and if there are any issues to do with performance, you're, you're dealing with them in your home, which is supposed to be the place that you escape to, generally speaking. So you're in a, this additional, I suppose, cyclone of, of stress and, and it could lead to problems for people. And that's the reality. You know, hopefully people will be careful and mind themselves, but there are situations where the strain becomes too much. And I think... Um, Resilience is the key during these times, but, you know, nobody is a superhuman. Uh, remember, your employer is actually obliged to provide you with a safe place of work. And they're supposed to have thought about this when doing a risk assessment of your home as your place of work and ensuring that you have enough support and checking in with you to make sure that you're managing things. So, you know, what I would say to an employee 
who feels that this, you know, something, you know, may be an issue for them is put your employer on notice of it. I mean, again, we wouldn't irresponsibly be recommending that anybody just issue a claim for a personal injury, but it is something that can arise. And one of the key proofs will be that your employer was on notice of your vulnerability and, and didn't act to put in place something to protect you or to, to make sure that you didn't fall apart, I suppose. It's a similar to if you you notify them that, uh, let's say, that on the stairs, the, the, the handrail is broken and they don't do anything to fix that and you end up falling down the stairs. A personal injury claim could arise there validly because they, they were on notice of something and they haven't done something to correct it. Mental health is the same. It's just a little bit more, I suppose, difficult to put into words or to uh, to describe or to put in a claim for as a result. But it is the, the same principle applies. So do put your employer on notice and seek support, you know, because you're going to need it. Yeah. And I, and I think the other thing to say is that, you know, this is a worldwide problem. This is a worldwide pandemic. And certainly from our experience and from our discussions with our colleagues, in Illingard Executives, which is a specialist employment law forum. It's a, a specialist organisation that we are part of. And our experience and our discussions with our colleagues and fellow lawyers in this network would be that, you know, these experiences that senior executives are experiencing here in terms of their contracts, in terms of their emotional health, in terms of the requirements for resilience and the contractual challenges that they face, they are worldwide. And if there is any international aspect to your contract employment, that is something that we can consider too in the context of our own network, because sometimes senior executives can have very complex contractual arrangements, which may require advice from different jurisdictions. But, you know, from a kind of practical perspective and anecdotal perspective, exactly the same thing is happening in all jurisdictions in the US and across Europe from our personal perspective. So, I suppose the bottom line really is, which is key, everybody's different, everybody's personal employment circumstances are unique. And if you are a senior executive or a professional working in the professional services of a firm and you are facing some challenges around your contract employment, whether it be kind of changes or a potential threat to your employment or in relation to any kind of issues or complaints that you've raised, the key is to take advice, take advice early. You have spent so much time and energy in building your career and your future is, is critical and important to you. So take that advice. And if you do have any queries or if you'd like to speak to myself, Claire or Regan, please don't hesitate to contact us because you know, we would be delighted to have a discussion with you in relation to that. So I'm just going to leave that now for now. I'd like to say thank you very much to uh, my fellow panellists, Claire and Regan. Thank you very much for listening to our podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it. And I hope that you'll join us again for our next podcast soon. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the CC Solicitors podcast. For more information or to get in touch, visit ccsolicitors.ie.